You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi everyone, this is Sarah, and we're bringing you a special episode this week. I was in New Orleans last week for Netroots Nation, which you may have heard about on a recent episode, and in this week we bring you the recording of our panel, What's a Strike and How Can I Help? The idea of this panel is to bring to a non-labor audience a better understanding of what goes into planning a strike and what's needed to pull one off successfully. It was moderated by Mary Catherine Ricker of the American Federation of Teachers. She is also former president of the St. Paul Federation of Teachers and featured yours truly alongside Rebecca Diamond, AFT member from West Virginia and one of the many rank-and-file strikers from the recent statewide strike there, and Jonathan Weston, director of New York Communities for Change, which, despite not being a union, has led many a strike, including the first ever Fight for 15 fast food strikes back in 2012. The topic of this is what, you know, what's a strike and how can I help? And I think really uh, demystifying striking is an important part of this panel's work. Then also the how can I help? Where does the talent, other groups, individuals, um, community organizations, the, the talent they have in a community, where does that apply to supporting the, the goals of a strike and the, and the striking workers? So, Rebecca, can I talk, start with you, since you were just on strike, if you would talk a little bit about, first, what, what was your strike and what did the solidarity you got from the community feel like? Um, our strike was because we wanted, first of all, our PEIA, which is our healthcare insurance, to be lowered. They wanted to raise our healthcare costs because there is no funding source for our PEIA. Um, we, we're told that um, instead of having our PEIA fully funded, like the AB20, that we were going to have to go to a new program. So this started probably two years ago, and we knew that something was going to happen because there wasn't a funding source for PEIA. So starting in November, we decided that you know we were going to have to take some action, but our action couldn't be taken until our government was actually in session, which didn't happen until January through March, so we knew it had to happen between that time, and we didn't want it to happen too soon because if we waited, uh, if we went out in January, we might have been out until March 10th, which was the last day of the session, so we, we talked about it from November all the way till February the 17th, and that was the day that we decided on February the 22nd that we were going to take the action that we needed, and then in all of that, we decided that we also were in need of a pay raise. We have been 48th in teacher pay since um, 2006, so we knew something had to change. You know, in feeling the solidarity, I, I was a little skeptical in the beginning because I watched my mother go through a strike in 1990 mm. and they did not have all of the solidarity. So my concern was, if we go out too soon and we don't have everybody and we're not getting paid because my husband's a teacher, I thought, Holy crap, I don't know what we're going to do. I really don't know what we're going to do. But once, the very first day that we had our statewide walkout on the 22nd, and you saw all 22 counties out. Oh, sweet Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, can I go to you next? And just, why does this matter? The solid, you know, the solidarity. How can I help in the midst of striking workers? I mean, so the reason I'm kind of salty with this room is like half full, honestly, <laughs> is that we're in a bad place in this country, and we are in a bad place in this country because unions have been crushed. 
And I am like not happy that the progressive movement is happy to take unions money to fund this conference and doesn't show up to this panel. more solidarity here. Um, this matters because this is how the risk that they took is how you get public schools funded, which we say we care about as progressives. That was not going to happen unless somebody, a lot of somebodies, like Rebecca, put something on the line and really fought for it, and striking is the best way to do that. Withholding your labor is one of the best ways, in fact, I would sometimes say the only way to exert power in a world that is this deeply unequal. And when you see successful strikes, you see them because, and they often come from teachers, they often come from people who are embedded in the community, nurses, because, you know, the parents at the school, they know their kid's teacher and they trust their kid's teacher. And they show up, you know, they show up to walk the picket line, they showed up to support the teachers, and that that is what makes the difference between a successful strike and a strike that fails, if you can build yeah. that relationship in your community and show people how that matters. Um, and you know, I, I started off by being sort of salty that, that this room is not full. Um, I will also say that the labor movement has forgotten some of that over the course of the last several decades. We have often not done as good a job as we should making it clear that labor issues are everybody's issues and that the union, the labor movement fights for the entire working class. But I think that what we learned from West Virginia, what we learned from the fight for 15, among other things in recent years, what we learned from the struggle in Wisconsin, is that people will remember that with a little, uh, little effort. Fantastic. Jonathan, do you want to add, oh, just what did they, whether it's the car wash strike or, or really the, the fight for 15 and, and the different actions that you've taken that um, are strike-like, in fact, uh, what, did that, what did that look like and what was, what was most useful both in the community for you and that you offered to the community in, in some of that work? Uh, so, I mean, in the fight for 15, um, the strikes that we were doing were very different than the strikes that, uh, you know, Rebecca and the West Virginia teachers and teachers all over the country are doing, which are really, you know, majority-based strikes that are taking everybody you can, getting them out on the street. Um, the fight for 15 was really based off of minority strikes, uh, getting as many workers as we could out of, uh, you know, as many restaurants as we could to take, you know, unified action uh, against an entire industry. Um, by no means were we taking the majority of workers out on strike. I wish we had that ability, had those resources, had that capacity, had that momentum, but uh, frankly, I just think the way the economy works now is, um, you know, within especially a lot of the service-based work and with a, a lot of the, you know, kind of in a franchise model and, you know, the way capitalism works now is everybody is segregated in, you know, in silos, nobody's working together, there's no, uh, you know, solidarity to be built because the entire system is set up to keep you apart from each other. Um, so in the Fight for 15, I think what we saw is we began organizing workers in Brooklyn. Uh, we began organizing some uh, fast food restaurants in Brooklyn, really off the premise that uh, New York is way too uh, pricey for anybody to be able to live, especially on a minimum wage of seven twenty-five. I mean, you're talking about two thousand dollars rents in uh, you know the lowest income neighborhoods in New York, um, which you know is where minimum wage workers live. 
and people were just not able to pay that. Frankly, even on $15 an hour, which we want yeah. in New York, <laughs> you cannot live, you cannot afford a $2,000 apartment. Um, so, you know, we were organizing folks in our neighborhoods, in our community. Uh, we're not a union, we're a community-based organization. We worked very closely with SEIU, but, you know, we were kind of organizing where they were at. And I think what we found is that, uh, you know, when, before 15 was even, you know, thrown out there was that, uh, you know, when we started talking to people about their workplace conditions, when we started talking to workers in the restaurants, uh, you know, even then it increased like $10 an hour from 7.25, which in any other profession, you mean, you're getting almost a 50% increase. They were like, that is nowhere near enough for us to be able to live. Uh, and I think that's where the 15 uh, demand came from was, you know, workers, really, uh, you know, bought into the idea that they deserved a lot more. They deserved way more than they were getting paid. And, you know, that's what we began organizing folks around, uh, was, uh, you know, that, you know, could we actually make this aspirational demand, you know, to double their salaries and, you know, get people bought in. And, you know, to be honest, it was, you know, it was slow at first. You know, we were striking, I mean, the first strike, I think, was 50 workers. Uh, you know, in New York City, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of fast food workers. So we're talking about we started with 50 workers and we built our way up to a committee of hundreds. Um, and what we accomplished was way beyond even any of our wildest dreams. Um, you, know, uh, you know, we we believed that, you know, we could fight and push and get McDonald's and others to the table to, you know, increase wages and, you know, do some things that would help workers. I don't think we ever believed that we could change the entire uh, low-wage worker movement uh, in America or across the globe. And, you know, it really started with just a few workers and a few shops that were, you know, taking this risk and getting them ready and, you know, to you know, believe uh, that they had power themselves uh, by, you know, by, you know, leaving work and by, you know, uh, picketing their franchise um, and you know it turned into this you know really amazing massive national movement so that's kind of the story I mean there's a lot more that went into this work you know, Ben in the crowd was one of the organizers on the campaign originally um, but there was you know tons of people who were involved in making this happen so that's really helpful and actually I think you create a great segue and in, in talking a little bit about what what was that an aspirational demand that workers needed to believe enough to commit to, right, then further actions. And and even knowing that that aspirational demand still wasn't enough, but you had to start somewhere. I think that leads to a, a really good opportunity for us to talk about what even goes into preparations to withhold your labor. You know, Rebecca, we heard a little bit from you that it initially started with insurance, but actually your aspirations grew after you started sharing frustrations about insurance to wages as well. well and, and we found out about like teacher requirements. Yeah. It was that they wanted yeah, to so lower again, the requirements for teachers to be teaching in their classrooms who were like, well, that's gotta be something else we gotta fight for because we want highly qualified teachers in our classroom. We don't because they could very well come to me and say, You've taught twenty years. I'm sorry, we're gonna put this person in here because she's not gonna make as much money as you. So you just have to go do something else. She's qualified, not highly qualified like you, but so we definitely yeah. teach for America. 
So Rebecca, talk a little bit about, and then I'd love to, to hear from Sarah too, especially some of the things you've uncovered in your reporting as well. But talk a little bit about, so you're a group of workers with frustrations, and we could probably go into any workplace in the country and find a group of workers with frustrations. But moving those workers, right, from frustrations to, I think Jonathan's point about believing enough in those, doing something about those frustrations to commit to doing something about it, what, what were some of you, what you consider the most effective preparations to get people to act on those frustrations? Um, one of the first things we did was, uh, for each one of our schools in, our, in just our county is that we um, developed like a, a flyer that we started passing out to everybody in our county and we thought, okay, they're going to know somebody in another county and they're going to know in a different county. So we just started passing these flyers out and we put them on Facebook and then somebody started um, a Facebook page about West Virginia, just Public Employees United is what it was okay. called. And it grew from one day to like a thousand to about 30,000 by the next day. Wow. I mean, everybody was falling in on it, so they were putting, they were mm -hmm. putting all of their you know, concerns and what they thought we needed to do and how we needed to organize this. So then, you know, we got, um, I went to um, just an AFT meeting with our superintendent and we discussed things in our county that we could do to help, you know, bring together the other AFT people. So then they had that big AFT conference. You know, they got together and they discussed, you know, we're going to have to do something because the teachers are talking about a work stoppage. So, you know, it grew from, you know, starting out in, in other counties. We were hearing from other counties that they were frustrated, especially when everybody got that letter on Go 365 about Go 360. We're like, oh no, no, this is this is not going to cut it. So explain about Go 360. Oh, uh, it, it's an online program for our um, healthcare insurance where you were going to have to log certain points for certain things that you ate. They wanted you to have a Fitbit. Like you had a, a certain amount of time to get so many points. If you didn't earn those points, then your deductibles and premiums were going to go up. There was no funding source for PPIA, so they were putting it all on us. They're like, well, you know, we're going to track everything you're doing and everything that's going on in your life, and if you don't meet that demand, then we're just going to punish you for it. It's a health tax. I don't know if you all know who the governor of West Virginia is. I'd like to see him on it. Let's <laughs> see how well he does. Publish his points. Sarah, what are some of the as you as you've researched um, yeah. and investigated some of these strikes or lead up, you know, near strikes, etc. Uh, what are some of the preparations that have a, you've seen that have been really effective at both getting this, you know, getting the solidarity within the workers and then getting the solidarity in the community as well? Yeah. Uh, the first, there were like five counties that all decided to take a one-day walkout. And then that led other counties to like, well, if they can do it, then we're going to do a one-day walkout. So we picked a date that we were going to do it. They gave them permission. At, yeah. So, you know, we all voted as to whether or not we would all go out. Just to, we, we needed to see if we were going to have the entire county going out, because if we didn't have the whole county going out, then it wasn't, it wasn't going to be effective. Yeah. So each county did their own little vote, and then we did a vote to see would we be willing to go out on a full work stoppage, allow our unions to, you know, decide if we were going to go on a full blown strike, you know, what, what were your, what would you agree to? What's going to make you go on strike? What's going to make you decide that this is important to you and that we're all going to be together? So 
we did do like statewide and then then that's when they got together and they all got together yeah. and all brought their votes and if we had more than like 75 or 80 percent of each county that had voted to yes do this and they did most counties were close to 100 percent in agreement to the outcome no, one of the things though that I want to bring up in, in especially listening to Rebecca talk is that like strikes are contagious. And so, you know, in this country, after the Reagan broke the air traffic controllers strike back in the early 80s, yeah, that's right, yeah. we should all do that every time we hear Ronald Reagan's name, um, but especially about PACO, strike frequency in this country just fell off, right? It just gone. Um, and that has been true ever since. And it's starting to go back up. Um, and uh, this year definitely uh, contributed to that because what happened after West Virginia is teachers all over the country were looking at West Virginia going like, oh wait, like we can we could do that, we could do that, that works. Um, and that's in some ways the best preparation of all is that like you see other people succeeding at it and you see what they did. And so like the Chicago teachers, when they went on strike, right, one of the things that they did to build up to that was release this report, which then other locals, including Mary, the St. Paul teachers, the report called uh, the school Chicago students deserve. And actually made the case that again, that this is good for the entire city of Chicago if the schools are properly funded. And this kind of work that built both feeling within the union that like, yeah, the kids deserve this, and so we deserve this, and also in the community. Um, and seeing the Chicago teachers strike was contagious, and it saw other unions go on strike, and then a lot of other unions go to the point of a strike, right? Like St. Paul Federation has gone to, like, what was it, like midnight this year, right? I was like literally yes. waiting on somebody to get back to me, because um, I had an article, and I was like, well, um. <laughs> and, they, exactly. and so a few that got deal, that got very good contracts, mm -hmm. including some really interesting stuff in them, like um, restorative justice programs, out of being willing to go on strike. And so, you know, that, that doesn't get covered as much because it's not as dramatic. But it comes from still the, the same work went into getting to yeah. that point where then the district and the district agreed the next time around with Chicago as well to most of the demands because they didn't want a big dramatic strike because, again, strikes are contagious. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting hearing Rebecca talk about uh, the teacher strikes because, I mean, it, it, it's a very different strike than, you know, tactic than we used on the Fight for 15, but yeah. I think the, the fear that goes along with a strike is still very much the same. I mean, even you hearing you talk yes. about the, like, work stoppages, right? Right. Um, but, I mean, I, I think the idea of strikes in this country has been, you know, kind of pummeled, uh, you know, like Sarah was saying, uh, you know, out of people. I mean, even the idea that you have to call it a work stoppage is because, you know, essentially labor law in the United States makes it illegal for you to strike on, like, you know, almost every occasion. I mean, even on fast food, if we were a labor union doing the intermittent strikes that we were doing at fast food restaurants, that would have been illegal for a labor union to do. Um, because U.S. labor law does not allow labor unions to do that. Yeah. Um, because you know, we're an independent community organization, we have more freedom and ability to do it. You know, but like in New York, we have the Taylor laws that make it illegal for public sector workers to go out on strike. 
So there's just so many ways that, um, you know, that the law and U.S. labor law and kind of the history of, uh, you know, corporations and the 1%, you know, making strikes illegal or making it feel to workers and everyday people that this is illegal, this is not okay, this is not right, uh, you know, you should not be doing this when, uh, you know, we actually have to reclaim, uh, you know, our own ability to strike and to take these actions, you know, whatever the repercussions are. And I think that's what's amazing about what uh, Rebecca and folks, you know, did in West Virginia, what teachers are doing across the country is um, no one knows exactly whether they're going to win or not. They just know that right now shit is fucked up. Uh, and that we have to figure out, you know, a path forward, um, you know, to, to benefit all of us. And, you know, I think the way Rebecca talks about the strikes um, that happened in West Virginia, I mean, I think we have a similar experience in New York and I think across the country that a lot, you know, we had fast food res restaurant workers going out and, you know, uh, on minority strikes, but they had literally thousands and thousands of people from the community supporting and behind them. Whether it was other labor union, like brothers and sisters, whether it was, uh, you know, elected officials, whoever it was, we were bringing everybody out with them as well, too, um, which actually made the strike feel much more impactful than just, um, you know, the workers that were out there on the front lines. I mean, we had a situation in New York in the very first kind of Fight for 15 strike where... Uh, and I think this is, you know, for the individual workers, the biggest fear is, uh, am I going to get fired or not? Especially in private sector strikes and, you know, places where there's no union representation. I mean, that is the fear. That is the biggest hurdle to get over is, am I going to get fired? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to be able to pay rent? Am I going to be able to, like, buy my kids food? Um, which is a huge fear. Um, there was a worker who, a young woman got fired at a restaurant for going out on strike and you know we you know within I don't know an hour or two set up a picket line and just like texted got as many community members and people there as possible at the Wendy's in Brooklyn uh, we got like the city council members there uh, marched them into the store and this guy this manager who probably gets paid like 50 cents more than actual worker themselves yeah. uh, was on the phone with like, you know, <laughs> corporate Wendy's talking about like, I have no idea what to do. And they're like, just give her a job back. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we got her back in. Uh, but I think it's, it's that sort of fear that people have to get over. But seeing that happen, yeah. you just empower everybody, um, you know, the workers there themselves, the community kind of, it, it you know, uh, it really helps you know, kind of build momentum across the city in terms of if they threaten to fire you, we there will be repercussions. Uh, and I think that's exactly how, you know, uh, yeah, you think about using a strike is, you know, it's one to go out and, you know, withhold your employment. It's another thing to, I mean, we're threatening the livelihood of, uh, you know, a bunch of these restaurants that they really wanted to fire people kind of uh, in mass, you know, We'll set up a picket line, we'll shut it down. I mean, on the car wash, we shut down for a couple of weeks. We turned away every car at the car wash for three weeks, and the owner was like, oh, whatever you want. <laughs> so there's also a way that we need to think about how to use strikes punitively against employers, because, and in you know, U.S. labor law, 
a lot of this is made illegal, but we have to figure out ways to go around those uh, barriers. And frankly, I mean, in many ways, we should just imagine they don't exist. Uh, because U.S. labor law will not change until we actually go further than we're supposed to go. Well, and they're picking it apart court case by court case anyway. So, you know, we relying on labor law as it exists and, and keeping up our labor's end of a bargain that capital, frankly, never accepted is just, it's at this point, it's ludicrous, right? And the, the Janus decision... Alito literally wrote that, like, well, we don't need to worry about labor peace anymore. And I'm like, I mean, you, you want it, guys. Like, be careful. Exactly, exactly. I really hope that it took them so long to drop that decision because they were looking at West Virginia and looking at Arizona and going, do we really want that? Are we sure, are we sure, sure that we can do that? Did we open? Yeah. So there are a couple of really great points that got brought up. And I want to um, insert a, a question, sort of a two sided question about barriers to getting solidarity from the community to any you've experienced or any ways you made sure you inoculated the community so there wasn't a barrier you or you've seen some really astute work in the communities um, and then that support for workers peace and I'm actually gonna I'll push pull it a little bit by my own personal experience and then seeing again like helping people understand the risks that get taken and not only can you hear it in Rebecca's voice clearly and in some of the stories Jonathan's shared but to understand um, the, the support that is really needed. Again, the what is a strike and, and how can I help peace uh, that to Sarah's sort of opening volley, we cannot be passive observers to workers fighting for workplace rights uh, because those workplace rights, historically, anytime any worker has won a workplace right, that has that has grown into other people winning those same rights. And so this is a larger fight for all of us. Um, and I, I, I to exempt, because I'm really struck by the idea that you were able to get like city council members and community members out to support this low wage worker. I know when I was bringing the St. Paul Federation of Teachers to the verge of a strike in 2013-14, um, I got a very different reaction from sort of the traditional leaders in the community that they had loved me as a union leader when I was behaving the way they wanted me to behave, right? right? Yeah. So when I was, you yeah. know, showing up with the $500 donation to the annual fund drive for X, and yeah. when I would show up for the ribbon cutting at the public library, and when I was, you know, screening candidates in a heavily democratic city who were going to get me, you know, to get the endorsement and things. And the moment I started... Um, and it happened before 2013-14, but it really blew up mm -hmm. in 2013-14 with um, a complete absence of solidarity from traditional partners. Mm -hmm. uh, that you know, again, sort of who are you know who do you think you are, Mary Catherine? And you know, quite frankly, like variations of phone calls of you know, get back in your box. We mm -hmm. you know we loved you when you behaved like. The traditional labor, the, the sort of the dusty labor union that um, that we know that sort of started happening, and um, in 2007 and 2009, as we started escalating some of the asks at the bargaining table, 2011 we escalated them more, and then 2013 when we were using the word strike, and people were like, "What are you doing?" You know, none of these decisions are yours to make about the number of school nurses that students have, or counselors, or library. You know, who are you to point out that the richest high school in the city has two licensed librarians, and the poorest, most diverse high school in the city has zero? Like, who are you to point that out, 
right? So I got a very different, re like we did not get city council members and community leaders showing up. So I, I say, I push Paul, I guess a little bit to say that it's like, my, it wasn't just my own vanity that needed to see support in the community, my yeah. members. Like, there's a symbiotic relationship that I also want to get to about what rank and file members need and what leaders need to, to really be successful in this. But for now, focusing on draw, like the community paying attention and who in the community do you want to sort of it, in, invite or, or who in the community should make sure they're paying attention to escalation tactics, how do you, like, what are some barriers to solidarity? How do you get around them or break them down? And like, how do you draw out that support for workers in the community? So I, we did the walk-ins in mm -hmm. the morning and then in the afternoon so that parents saw that there, there was a possibility that we may not be at work. So we, you know, we had our signs up outside and it was all over the state. Um, and then, you know, you had parents calling and we offered information to our parents if they called us. And even while we were on strike, we still, as, as communities, they still provided food for the kids um, while they were out. Um, because that was one of the things they wanted to get the community against us. So they thought, oh, what are you gonna do with all these kids that are starving right now? Um, so that changed when the community heard that. They thought, yeah, we'll show them, you know, basically our yeah. legislators. But, you know, we got together, like I got to know who our representatives were in my area. I got to know which representatives and which senators were not with us. And I emailed them every day. I was calling their office every day. I was calling our governor's office every day and teachers all over the state. So we were posting those on Facebook. So that's how we got the community to get involved. And then by going to the Capitol for the, us, just being there, I mean, mm. if you all could have been there, it, it was impressive to see that whole rotunda there just full of teachers just yelling at one end, yelling at this end, and you know, they're in session. But of course, when you're in the galleries, I don't know if you guys have ever done this in your capital, but you're not allowed to talk. Right. I mean, you can't make a sound. Yeah. They don't want anything going on. But yeah, you watch them in the gallery and you watch some of them not paying attention. And you know how much that pisses me off whenever I'm watching, you know, maybe my representative, As a my senator, and you're like, why in the hell is he not paying attention over there? And, and this guy's standing up talking about something that I feel like is important. And then my representative, and so I had a couple of phone numbers of some of the representatives, so I was texting him like, I want you to go over here and I want you to tell him that he's not doing what he's supposed to. He is not paying attention. That's really making me mad. That is an outstanding way. I think, yeah. you know, the, the inoculation you go through with a worker to get them ready to, you know, uh, get over the fear that you know, they may be fired, there may be repercussions, et cetera, um, and talk them through that. It's the same sort of inoculation I feel like you, you need to go through with, uh, you know, people that you think are gonna be your allies. I mean, you know, when, when we went out on strike, we prepped the elected officials beforehand to know this was happening, to know what we were doing, to be ready, et cetera. Like, you know, the spontaneous, I mean, some sometimes you catch lightning in a bottle, but most of the times, yeah. You don't. It's just the slog of getting people on your side um, that you have to go through. And I, I think we treat it, you know, you know, we're engaging organizations we believe are going to be supportive. We were engaging 
you know, community members at the car wash track, we literally door knocked the entire neighborhood around the car wash right before. So like, you have to go through you know, the preparation process to be able to get people to a place where um, you know, the workers themselves are gonna be ready, but also the people that are going to be supporting them are ready uh, to come out and you know, support. Yeah, I have like two things that I wanted to bring up here. Um, one is when we're talking about public sector workers, and particularly with teachers, but also nurses, um, caring workers, people whose job is to take care of somebody else. Um, they're always called selfish, right? When you get like Rob Emanuel and like whatever, right? Those selfish teachers are just making demands for themselves and they don't care about the students. And this is what the, right, exactly, exactly. Um, and it's real funny to me because um, as Jonathan was saying, right, we have we live under a political economic system that is designed to make us all think about ourselves first, right? This is what we're told as kids is you have to like work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better than your classmates and then you will be successful, whatever that means. And then when you do that, when you say like, no, I want to raise because we get paid not enough to survive, then right, then you're selfish. Um, and like I said, I think that the teachers in recent years have done a really good job inoculating against that by doing the research and the prep and saying like, our working conditions are our students' learning conditions. All of y'all have heard that one now, right? But it's true. And it's, you know, when you're talking about there being no librarians, when you're talking about there being no toilet paper or cockroaches, like the Detroit public schools, right? When the teachers were sick outs. Yeah, yeah, that's what your kids are going to school in too. Um, then on the flip side, I want to talk about a couple of private sector things. One yes. was um, when the New York taxi workers went on strike over the Muslim ban yes. during the protests. And um, Americans relearned the definition of the word scab because Uber yes. announced that it was going to lower its, you know, oh, we're going to waive our surge pricing so that you can get home. And 200,000 people by Uber's own admission deleted <laughs> Uber after that. And that my friends, is solidarity. That's right. And that is a thing we need to think about. Um, so the Amazon strikes that I brought up this week, um, workers across Europe in distribution centers in Germany, Spain, and um, Poland, I believe, went on strike for Amazon Prime Day. And again, these were minority strikes. This is not um, the majority of any of these distribution centers, but it was enough to mess Amazon's life up a little bit. Um, though they won't admit exactly how many numbers. Um, and there was a lot of debate going on online about like whether you should buy something from Amazon while there is a strike on. The answer is no, friends. Um, you know, and this is a thing that has come up a lot, that people are kind of like, well, and this was true when the women's strike was called last year too, that people were kind of like, but is it privileged to go on strike? And shouldn't we like, shouldn't the poor people still be able to buy the cheap things on Prime Day or something like that? And it's like, Y'all, solidarity requires something of you more than like whatever is convenient from you. Um, and the workers are putting their livelihoods and sometimes their safety on the line, right? I mean, West Virginia teachers did a very good job of evoking the mine wars in the good old days where yes. they would call out the Pinkertons to literally shoot at you. Because people remember that, right? Uh, this is not that long ago in our history when we talk about labor peace ending, y'all. That's right. Um, and so, yeah, the idea that we might have to like give up a little to support 
order action is, is again, it's hard to sort of say to people like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't order that thing when it's 20% off today because there are literally workers on strike and you will undermine their entire purpose in doing what they're doing today by saying, well, I just need that thing though. Mm -hmm. So you bring up um, political strikes as well, or just there are other, like there are strikes where workers are withholding their labor. Um, I'm actually, I, this is one of my opportunities to plug. The other thing I love talking about is common good bargaining and the broadest definition of bargaining for the common good possible. And um, where I saw that intersect with striking was, and hopefully you saw the story this spring of uh, the Japanese bus drivers who went on strike by continuing to drive their routes but refusing to accept any payment from any of their customers. <laughs> to your point about like find ways to hurt the employer and show solidarity in the community at the same time. And it really, a lot of this panel is trying to draw out those examples of solidarity that workers felt in the community, but there are times, and again, boycotting Amazon on Prime Day, et cetera, is another example of the sort of, you know, the sort of small ways to use, to use a very wide definition of withholding your labor, um, the, sort of, um, the sort of ways you can, um, you can influence employers on behalf of workers as well. Um, I know the growing movement of avoiding shopping on Black Friday is another example of saying, I'm not gonna do big box retail or I'm only gonna spend at independent stores and things. I think there would be another example. Um, are there other examples out there where that can, um, that can inspire us as ways, you know, ways you can be in the community to, to again, the broadest definition of withholding your labor, right? With, withholding my, withholding my purchasing power or whatever, um, or political strikes that you've seen, um, that, that are, are inspiring you and having you think mm -hmm. of like the next thing. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, there, there was an interesting case, uh, I forget what it was, a year or two ago, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, where Verizon workers went on strike in New York, so CWA, mm -hmm. their biggest kind of force in New York is uh, the Verizon landline workers uh, who are unionized. Um, because of the terrible U.S. labor law, that also meant that they couldn't do secondary boycotts. So what that means is because they represent the landline workers and not the cell phone workers, and they couldn't picket cell phone stores. So the reason that's important is because Verizon's growing business model is in cell phones. Not, I mean, Fios and things like that, you know, Verizon still makes money on but the cell phone business is the most important business to them. So because this, the actual workers themselves couldn't go out and picket these stores, we all, the community organizations, other, other labor unions in the city, other yeah. people, uh, other volunteers, picketed on behalf of them. Uh, so we actually picketed the cell phone stores uh, alongside uh, the Verizon landline workers that were picketing the landline uh, centers, whatever they're called. Um, and I, and you know, I think CWA admits that that, I mean, you know, that, that strategy was really what helped break uh, corporate uh, to settle the landline uh, workers' contract. So, I mean, I just think there's all sorts of ways that people can support uh, strikes and can support you know workers that are putting themselves on the line. That, like Sarah said, 
go way beyond just like you know mild inconvenience to yourself, right? Like there's actually uh, very proactive things you can do uh, to benefit workers and everyone strikes with it. I mean, you know, ordering pizzas is great, but you know, putting yourself out yeah, there on the picket line. some strike pizza though. It's <laughs> better, you know. Putting, your, putting yourself out there is usually the best way that you can support a strike. I mean, I brought donuts like every couple of days down to the guys that were picketing the Verizon store in, uh, in Newburgh when I was there. Although then I started to feel bad because they were on strike for a while. I'm like, shouldn't I be bringing you something like healthier than donuts? Uh, you know, after this, I was like, can I get you some fruit? Um, so when I think about political strikes, I mean, the West Virginia strike was a political strike, right? These are, sure. they are, these are strikes targeting Fully for legislation, um, and I, you know, that really got kicked off in Wisconsin recently, right? In 2011, Scott Walker, this is where you all hiss. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> Scott Walker is uh, Act 10, right? And um, so, you know, what happened in Wisconsin? And again, this sort of built through the community. It started with the graduate student workers at the University of Wisconsin. They were the first ones to go protest this. And then the other unions joined in. And then members of the community who were not union members joined in. And then suddenly you have, I don't know, 60,000 people sleeping in the Wisconsin Capitol. And then they got kicked out of the Capitol, so they slept on the street in a Wisconsin winter, which like, yeah. I already think people who live in Wisconsin are a little crazy for that winter, but like, everybody's <laughs> so, yeah. Too, so. <laughs> and, but you know, you saw this thing grow and grow and grow and grow and more people just came yeah. and stayed. And that, you know, that space, right, taking up that space that then, you know, that kicks off the Occupy movement, all these other things that have been happening that I wrote a whole book about. Um, <laughs> and the other thing that I think of when I think of political strikes is the days without an immigrant. Right, the biggest yeah. general strike that this country has ever seen was the what 2005 Day Without an Immigrant. Right, where something like I don't remember the numbers—a million undocumented workers didn't go to work—and we've seen those revived since yes. Trump. Right, um, since I'm talking about Wisconsin, um, the folks in, in Milwaukee have done a couple of really impressive Days Without an Immigrant. Um, and there were, you know, a couple of them last year across the country. And this is, again, it's one specific group of workers saying, we are not going to work. We are going to close down stores if we own a small business. Mm -hmm. um, we are going to show this country what it would look like if Donald Trump got his way and deported all of these people, right? And that's, you know, that's especially scary right now when you have, you know, ICE doing all the things that ICE has well, always done, but ratcheted up to 11. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it's but it's incredibly powerful to look at that. And so, you know, how do you support that when you are not an undocumented worker? What does that look like? Um, what does it look like when we are talking about people who then may be targeted for deportation because they went on strike, because they mm -hmm. took action? What kind of actual solidarity do we have when that's happening? Um, how do we actually stop people from being deported when that happens? Um, I think that's a really important thing that we should be thinking about right now. We've seen, you know, in New York, there have been several fights over, um, including the, I forget the name, I'm sorry, Jonathan, you probably remember, the, the guy who delivered pizza to the oh, fort and then you. got ice called on him for his troubles. Um, and the community came out and said, are you yeah. kidding me with this shit? Um, and that, that is something also I think we should be thinking about right now is like, how do we use the power potentially of the strike of the community to protect undocumented workers who might want to take workplace action. Mm -hmm. The latest um, 
story I'm thinking of, there have been a number of stories over this past year of, um, of people uh, refusing to sit down in the plane. And, yeah. um, and then the latest one was just a viral video of a, of a young woman telling, explaining why she refused to sit down on a plane in order to, because this person who was being deported in, in all of these cases, and actually there was a case in Germany of a, of a, of a pilot who refused, who withheld his labor, yeah. refused the plane to take off until yeah. the person yeah. being deported uh, was removed to the plane and, and not because he said he refused and that part of his pilot code of ethics was to not fly someone into harm's way yeah. and that he was doing that. Other examples of people with, again, what do you have to withhold? Right. What do you have, like how can you show your part, power and solidarity and then broadening it out, right? We started talking about specifically about workers, but now broadening it out to um, other people in our society who are having their having their rights rescinded or who are being made more vulnerable. Uh, Jonathan, yeah. you had another idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly that, you know, a lot, you know, should read Sarah's book, but uh, when you think about the movements that have happened over the past, you know, uh, I don't know, I guess ten years, from like Occupy, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and you know, a bunch of the the kind of you know really invigorating movements in this country, where uh, you know, when we're talking about the a political strike, you know, there folks are marching to just shut whatever down um, in a way that sends a message to folks that uh, you know this isn't okay I mean I feel like you know especially you know white people white people especially on the right their critique of the black lives matter movement was like why are they marching on a highway like what yeah. what is that like that's just silly and stupid but in reality they're shutting down kind of you know the ebb and flow of economic capital in the same way that um, Kind of the airport strikes uh, over the Muslim ban was they were actually shutting down, you know, important you know centers of commerce uh, that really fuck with capital and the one percent. And um, I've actually generally been surprised that there hasn't been more of that within this kind of resistance uh, era because in in many ways, like the inspiring moments for myself and I think for a lot of folks that. Uh, are on the left have happened in, you know, actually shutting things down, actually stopping the flow of business, actually, um, actually resisting, right? Um, and it, it's, it, it has kind of felt, you know, over the past two years of, you know, um, you know, kind of this administration that we haven't had, uh, besides the teacher strikes, honestly, which, I mean, thank God for what the teacher folks are doing around the country, there hasn't been that resistance um, to capital and what's happening uh, in this country. And I I mean, I actually expect that that's probably where things need to go and where we need to bring it. Um, I'm not sure what form it will take. I think, you know, it it looks something like the teacher strikes. Um, But I think we need more of that. We need to figure out how to spur on more of these um, kind of, you know, shutting things down and just stopping business as much as we can because, you know, trying to get Chuck Schumer to spine up is not, <laughs> like, the solution. What do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. That was Mary Catherine Ricker, Rebecca Diamond, Jonathan Weston, and me talking about strikes at Netroots Nation. 
That is all we have for today, but thank you as always for listening and for supporting our work. Thank you especially to our sustaining members. You can sign up to help keep us going with a monthly donation at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. You can also make a one-time donation there. And if you can't make a donation, you can always leave us a review on iTunes or just tell your friends about us. You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org and tweet at us at hashtag belabored. We will be back soon with a breakdown of how Missouri's labor movement defeated right to work. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.